एक मिनट रुक जाओ रेडी होने दो चलो ये कर लेते हैं fintech is eating software and there are fintech approaches towards solving a variety of problems essentially where the software part of it is just enabling the fintech to happen better and a, a great founder i'm speaking to today who is building fintech for healthcare is chris george chris has had a fascinating journey from starting up his very first venture when he was just 16 years old and uh, i mean i don't even remember if i knew what is business when i was 16 after a bunch of successful ventures today he's running cube health cube health is essentially a fintech full stack platform for healthcare cube health helps companies to manage their health programs be it insurance be it uh, a regular executive checkup or any other kind of health and welfare programs for employees and by acquiring companies cube health builds relationships with employees and allows those employees to get access to a buy now pay later or credit for their health expenses which are not covered by insurance therefore allowing them to stay out of poverty in case of sudden unforeseen health issues in the family uh, i am super inspired by what chris is building and here's my conversation with him starting when he was 16 years old i enrolled for my first year bsc um, in physics <clears throat> interestingly enough that was my epiphany you can say my first epiphany in life i've had quite a few um I, you know while i was pursuing that um you know my, my dad used to give me some very meager pocket money right i think it was like for an entire month i think i had 500 rupees or something which i thought was amazing but <laughs> but, but i was like for 500 rupees nothing is going to happen um so uh, you know me and a couple of friends who were enterprising got together and said listen maybe we should organize some sort of a mini college festival or something like that you know for some extra pocket money um It, 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 you know that that first event we did. It was a bit of a fashion show with some band and all of that kind of thing. A small scale event. Um, each of us netted about. And you had like a ticket price on it. Like, how did you make money on it? We basically went to uh, thumbs up and got them to sponsor and you know things like that. Sold tickets, literally going college to college into everyone. And uh, you know each of us netted three uh, thousand rupees. uh you know out of that event which i thought was just like incredible right and uh, yeah 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 it, it yeah. was like oh my god this is so good you know you get money you get recognition and all kinds of things like that so so that actually was my first step towards entrepreneurship um i was 16 years old and we incorporated a company uh in the event management space um so um so that was the start actually from there uh, that business over the following year and a half uh, did some of um, uh, the more visible college festivals in bombay um, so iit bombay is like you would pitch to a college that uh, 
why don't you start a festival and we'll take care of the logistics, the sponsorship and the ticket sales. We'll do everything. Yes, I mean, I mean the college uh, college has already had a festival. So we'd pitch say, saying that give us the production, right? So uh, so uh, Bombay has a girls college called the Safari. This is like a fixed fee or you would earn on ticket sales? You no, know, we'd earn like on ticket sales, we'd earn on sponsorship, all kinds of things like uh, wherever we could. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, we, uh, Bombay has Safaya College, uh, you know, so they have a, a festival called Kaleidoscope. So we did the production for that. We, IIT Bombay has a rock uh, event uh, called Mood Indigo. So we did some stuff for that. Um, you know, we we ended up partnering with some larger event management companies like Viscraft and TM. This is which year? Quite some time back. <laughs> so, <laughs> quite some time back. But I'll give you a time marker. We actually did uh, backstage production for Bon Jovi when he came to India, and uh, and Brian Adams when he came to India. So it was it was a glorious time. We we had a great time. Um, you know, we were quoted. You you must have been like making like. 40, 50 lakhs a year or something from that, no? Like the the organization. Well, the I mean, to be, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it was not that much, but it was it was very good. We thought we were rich, <laughs> you know. But um, to be honest, um, more than the money, and I think we were still figuring out uh, the one of the fundamentals of business, which is how do you price your business, right? How do you price your services? At that point in time, you know, we were just glam, uh, you know, taken away by the glamour. We were popular; people knew us. We'd go to different colleges and people knew who we were. And that was kind of fueling everything, right? Um, so so that kind of drove a lot. But more importantly, um, it taught us um, ground skills. You know, how do you print a poster? How do you design a poster? How do you go sticker it up? How do you sell ticket sales? You know, dealing with the police, the permissions, you know, actual hardcore I truly believe even today that uh, event management is one of the most difficult businesses that is out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. You you need to be a, an extremely efficient multitasker to pull off an event. Absolutely. So hats off to anybody who's in that business, you know, uh, across the board. Uh, we, we uh, you know, tried to graduate onto doing a bit of um, artist management. So we signed up a few local bands and, you know, signed them up for gigs and stuff like that. So it was cool. It was good. I mean, that, that 18 month, those 18 months were was actually a, a fantastic, fantastic time for us. Um, there were about four of us uh, that were very closely involved. Um, why did it end? Like, why only 18 months? Yeah, so so, so that's actually my second epiphany in life. So one of the friends um, from that group actually passed away, met with an accident and passed away. Um, uh, uh, you know, he, he had a motorcycle accident and uh, went through stuff. And I started questioning, you know, by this time, I, I, I was ending my first year BSc physics and, you know, I started questioning life. I went back to my father and I said, uh, you know, I really don't know, you know, what the hell am I doing with this BSc physics education? Uh, I mean, I really like it, but uh, as a as a subject, but the kind of stuff I'm learning, you know, I don't see the practical use of it, etc. And my dad said that, you know, have you really thought about business? Because you haven't taken pocket money from me for like a year and a half now. You guys seem to be doing a bunch of things. Uh, have you really thought? And, you know, culturally, that at that time, you may recall, it was like, oh, if you're a science student, if you downgrade to economics or commerce, <laughs> 
you know. So I, so my mom was like, oh my God, people are going to think you flunked or something like that, right? So I said, well, you know, I, I really need to think. And that's when I, I, I said, okay, well, can I go for a business course? And of course, the IMs and all were there, but, you know, I couldn't get in there at that time. So I said, let me think about abroad. Um, so I found out that the bachelor's in business administration course existed abroad. And, um, you know, I, I told my dad that, you know, should I apply? So my dad said, listen, I'll give you money for application fees. I'll give you money for the first semester if you're able to get through. Then the rest is on you. So, and this is this is at a time when the United States uh, Education Foundation in India uh, used to have a center. Um, so students could go and do research in, in something known as Patterson Guide and stuff like that, right? So, so, so I did that along with another buddy of mine. And uh, lo and behold, I, I managed to get through for my bachelor's in business administration in Texas. They agreed to transfer my credits from the first year BSc physics. So it was not like a waste or a drop year or anything of that sort. And they said, okay, great, come on over. And I was like, what? Wow, I managed to get through. <laughs> so yeah, so so that was, and, and then begins the second part of my journey. Hmm. So uh, like, what was it like, uh, you know, landing in Texas? And I mean, Texas is like not very multicultural, right? I mean, it's like, I from what we've heard, at least then, and and uh, you know, uh, the the big cities have now gotten a lot more. I mean, Houston, Dallas, and San Antonio are, are a lot more multicultural now. A uh, lot of daisies there for sure, especially in Houston and Dallas. Um, uh, so so you know, it was it was bizarre actually. So here I am, you know, seventeen and a half, along with this other school friend of mine. Both of us had applied together. We managed to get through. Um, and um, the other side of Texas is that. Uh, they're extremely polite and courteous. So we were walking to the bus stop and, you know, random people, if they met your eye, they'd say, hey, howdy, how, you know, how's it going, you know? And, and, and you know, we used to not respond. And I used to tell my friend, does he, you know, I'm like, does he know you? He's like, how, how is he going to know me? You know, like, I, I just arrived with you. How will he know me? And then eventually we figured out, you know, it was just, polite conversation so 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 interesting things like that or the fact that you uh, you know unless you're in downtown main city you cannot raise your hand and just stop a cab you have to actually call a cab and and we we went around and we were like there's no taxis here man like how the hell do we do it etc etc uh, but like i said my dad agreed to pay for the first semester which meant that i had to find a job in a rush um and and i ended up getting my first quote unquote job job in a petrol pump or a gas station uh over there uh which was run by a pakistani gentleman um and uh, it was a petrol pump and a convenience store so in itself um mr riaz as I, I still remember him who taught me a lot actually and uh, my job was to of course manage the store and he explained to me everything from inventory management, stocking, cash management, you know, managing the inventory of the of the petrol and diesel that used to sell and so on and so forth. I had to switch to buses um, before I reached that particular location after university. So in the morning, I used to go to college and then afternoon, I used to go there and work till late in the night because you used to get paid a little above minimum wage uh, by the hour, right? What I didn't realize is that that particular gas station happened to be in one of the most notorious uh, neighborhoods in the city. 
uh, which which had a lot of gangland violence <laughs> actually uh, and you know you're 18 or so or whatever so one night when i was walking back from there um, uh, to the bus stop um, you know you have these you see in the rap videos you have these low rider cars that go bouncing like this you know with the loud music playing it was unique to me so i'm walking on the side of the road and then this boom 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 kind of stuff comes in and i look over because i was just curious and of course these bunch of guys young kids i mean you know i mean i was young and they were younger got out and they were like what the hell are you looking at and and i was like oh my god uh, and and clearly they looked like they wanted to pick a fight right so uh, they they basically got out and i was like nothing 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 and whatever no no what do you mean nothing etc it was seemed like a scene out of good fellas or something like that and and this guy actually lifted his his t-shirt and he had a uzi submachine gun or at least something that looked like that i was like listen it's okay but here's the interesting story um those guys would regularly come to the gas station to fill gas um and they eventually became friends um because of a interesting thing so the our store used to sell along with regular cigarettes and uh, you know other stuff like that bds right the indian indian bds right and uh, my 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 boss had a great idea where he buy the bd pack which is like i don't i don't know what's the price of bd now but i mean that time i think it was like a dollar or something like that and you you have like 20 leaf rolled nice tobacco bit which is uh, you know all legal and stuff and he would sell each bd uh, for a dollar right so i mean he was creaming the margin on this and these boys would he would sell it to them by saying that listen this is legal tobacco so it looks like a like a illegal substance yeah it looks but, like a joint uh, <laughs> it looks like a joint uh, but it, it you know in case you get caught you know it it's not going to show up because it's totally legal it's sold and they used to love this right so they used to come to buy this and i'd give them um, a couple of bds for free um so these guys that original gang of gangsters the local hoods they all became friends because i spoke to my boss and i used to occasionally give bds and a couple of beer cans and they became quote unquote my protectors uh, <laughs> so that was a that was an interesting interesting experience how long did you work in that petrol station oh wow oh, throughout my undergrad i um, from from uh, mr riaz's place i moved to another patel store uh, mr bipin patel who was a local entrepreneur he had three gas stations he had like two motels and stuff i graduated to managing all five of those properties uh, for bipin by Uh, while you were still studying while i was still studying while i was studying in the store because that's the only time i could get homework done right um and uh, so so great experience great experience learned you know inventory management dealing with people dealing with customers multitasking uh, you know uh, running a business basically running a business right i mean uh, it 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 you know understanding the different types of people the profiles how do you literally i mean all of it all of it it was it was a great experience so yeah. which year did you pass out um so this was uh, in the 90s in the mid 90s um and uh, uh, you know then from there i moved to new york uh, to do my masters at nyu um, uh, so i did my mba um and i i moved to new york at a time when uh, uh, you know uh, the 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 
what is now actually a very hip neighborhood called the Meatpacking District uh, was actually the Meatpacking District, and uh, and I lived in Brooklyn. Uh, I consider New York still my second home after Bombay because um, my formative years actually was there. Um, and uh, did my masters and straight out of uh, masters. Uh, NYU is uh, not easy to get into, right? Like yes, uh, yes. Yeah. What 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 do you think helped you? Was it this experience of uh, most definitely. Most definitely, this experience hmm. in itself. Because they don't look so much at an academic score, right? As much as the. That's correct, and 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 um, uh, you know I understood that uh, as well. Um, you know, eventually I I did uh, some summer working with the admissions office. So you know the kind of uh, uh, they they used to look for personalities, right? I mean, you needed to have a story. Um, so so it was great, um, uh, you know, and and it, it, it's a fantastic university, and you know, especially uh, Stern School of Business and stuff like that. It was a great thing. Um, so um, I did that. I, I again continued to work in parallel, um, you know, bunch of things. Uh, straight out of campus, ended up joining a telecom company called Sprint Telecom, um, uh, and I was part of the team that launched. Was it uh, South South Bank owned then or? No, 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 no. It was independent. It was a, basically there was AT and T, Sprint, and Worldcom. Those were the three top three uh, telecom companies at that time. Right. So um, yeah. So basically, uh, uh, ended up uh, joining uh, Sprint Telecom. Um, I was part of the team that launched their cellular service division called Sprint PCS on the East Coast. Um, uh, you know, my, my professor recommended, and I ended up getting a great job there. Uh, fantastic experience. I helped set up a 500 seat call center for them. Um, you know, and things like that. Um, this was in the early days of the uh, call center. Right? This is, and I, and I still remember uh, WorldCom and a couple of these companies. There was a company called Global Crossing that was laying the fiber optic cables that eventually became the foundation for outsourcing of call centers to places like India and Philippines and stuff like that. Um, and we used to talk about how, uh, you know, setting up a 500 seat call center in New York is so expensive, even though we chose the real outskirts of New York City. And then people said that eventually, you know, you can actually move this somewhere else, which is what happened. Um, so did that and uh, for, for a brief bit, um, uh, about a year or so, and then, uh, 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 you know, kind of uh, moved to Bell Atlantic, uh, another telecom company now called Verizon, um, uh, uh, you know, so uh, uh, and moved there to head uh, what's known as value added services or VAS. Um, basically, it's just a fancy way of saying that, you know, you have to sell shit like uh, call waiting and conference calls and all of that kind of thing <laughs> to people. So, so did that, <laughs> customized ringtones and stuff like that. So, so did that. And um, third epiphany in life, uh, ended up coming uh, to India in the year, coming back to India with a Shah Rukh Khan moment from Swadesh. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, thinking that boss, there's something happening in India, uh, got to go back. That. That was that was actually in uh, the year two thousand. Was it, was it actually after watching Swadesh or? Uh... No no no. It was. I mean, I didn't think Swadesh. Yeah, it was just just a feeling, right? So I was like, uh, gotta go and see what's happening. So, so so that's what happened, and I came back to India. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then. Uh, and uh, well, I came back and I reached out to my buddies. So three of the four founders, uh, you know, were doing different things. Uh, you know, uh, I met up with them. One of them happened to be working for Sony Music, 
um and um, and sony music was doing some amazing things you know from lucky ali's suno album that came out on the on the indie indie record side which did fantastically well with osanam and things like that uh to launching everything from michael jackson to various other ricky martin and jennifer lopez and stuff right um so so he was selling cd's and cassettes and um, he was on the sales side and he said you know chris uh, uh, i mean we were talking right i mean talking about bands talking about businesses and events and all of that and he said you know uh, the music industry is the only uh, industry at least at that time where distribution is a competitive ad- uh, uh, advantage in india um everywhere else let's say if you have michael jackson signed to your record label or let's say justin bieber then you will make a lot of money because Justin Bieber will sell a lot but in india if your cds and cassettes don't reach the store uh, you know it doesn't matter if you have justin bieber because you will never make money and uh, i was like you know coming from the us and stuff and you know amazon had uh, started building its business and i was like that's crazy why don't we just do a mail order business um, and of course i had read about how virgin started its mail order business and all of that kind of stuff i said we should consider Virgin Music, right? Um, so we said, you know, maybe I should consider doing this. Um, so that actually helped create my first venture after coming back. Um, the company was called Easy Buy Music, um, essentially selling CDs and cassettes online. It eventually became Easy Buy Store, uh, which is probably one of the early versions of Flipkart. Um, and they were, they were basically just pretty much two or three dot-com e-commerce companies between the years 2001 till 2004 um and we were what is known as a hybrid meaning you could call on the telephone and order some stuff from cd's cassettes to books to you know various games and what not um and you you had a call center also that experience of call center would have helped here exactly that's exactly what happened actually i think we were uh, india's second or third company that got the toll free number that they had launched how did you fund all this like like this would have needed upfront investment huh? absolutely absolutely so actually it 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 uh, you know my dad helped me out by giving me i think uh, 75000 rupees or 80000 rupees and uh, just to kind of uh, pay for expenses so that friend of uh, mine and i we went around to music companies and uh, an interesting thing is like the music industry in india or the film industry in india is a cartel right so either you're in the cartel or you're outside um it it took me about a year to kind of get into that cartel sign on all of the record labels um it's interesting that a lot of them are still friends even till this day uh, because once you're in the circle you're in the circle kind of stuff um and we started selling cds and cassettes and all kinds of stuff and books across the country but very soon um this concept called there was there a payment gateway at that time uh, cash on delivery uh so so we went and built a cash on delivery model worked with icici bank and uh, first flight couriers and things like that and you know it was it was a fascinating time but well, almost within the first year itself uh we got uh, um uh, picked up by a consulting firm called arthur anderson which used to be there uh, right so 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 uh, arthur anderson pre and ron pre and ron days correct so arthur anderson india basically said hey look we will help incubate your business and i had no idea what incubate means right so they said we'll help shape but the great thing was um over the course of the 6 months they architected the blueprint of the company right we started thinking like a big company and company meaning we were just two people it was me and my buddy uh but uh, and they helped uh, uh, do the road show of 
raising funds. We actually ended up raising money from ICICI Ventures uh, at that time in the year 2001 um, and raised a princely sum of $1.5 million at that time. And it was it was spectacularly bizarre to me and especially my dad and his friends saying that someone's just giving you money. For <laughs> you guys are two people. Like, and what the hell? You know, how are they doing this? How are they valuing the business and stuff like that? But that money actually helped us um, scale, set up. And in about nine months, uh, we grew to about 160, 170 people across eight cities, um, built out a team, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and kind of scaled. We ended up actually uh, being amongst the top five retailers online or offline for music products and stuff like that in the country. Um, so rode that wave till about 2004. Um, and uh, which is when the dot-com crash happened. And, um, you know, so everybody was shutting down. So I went back to the board and said, listen, what do you want me to do? I mean, I, I, we can still survive. We are making uh, some money. Interestingly enough, what we had done was more than selling our, our own products, we built an e-commerce infrastructure that was powering some of the top 30 dot-coms in the country during that time. Uh, so between the year 2000 and 2004, if you went to Rediff, Sifi, Chai Time, Bazi.com, blah, 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 the back end more than likely was powered by us, right? So you'd buy there, but fulfillment was done by us. Um, so that kept us afloat. But I went to the board and said, listen, what do you want me to do? So they said, uh, look, I mean, we are taking a write down on all our investments. So if you want to shut down, you know, you know, we want this thing. So I said, you know what? That's bad karma. So if you're willing to be patient, I'll figure out something. So they said, okay. And uh, so I ended up euthanizing the business, you can say. So bought it down from 170, 80 people down to 35 people. Most gut-wrenching experience ever because uh, you had to lay people off. You know, you had to kind of talk the talk on that side, etc. And we said, you know, what is it that we understand? You reached this stage because you were out of capital. Like We, we would have been out of capital in about six months. Um, and this was 2004, right? And I think Flipkart started 2007. Um, of course, that particular board member and investor uh, of that fund, uh, very powerful lady now in the and, and a very close friend uh, in the private equity space. Uh, you know, whenever we meet, she says, Chris, I think if you had just hung around for three, four years, I mean, you could have been Flipkart, right? I was like, yeah, but if you guys had invested, continued to put in money, then maybe that would have happened, right? Uh, but anyway, uh, hindsight, right? So, so we had we had runway for about six months, but we knew eventually we'd run out of money. So I didn't want to kind of be there in that situation. So paid people off, gave them some severance of a couple of months and stuff like that, and said, let's go back to the drawing board. What is it that we understand? We said we understand internet, we understand technology, we understand consumers, and we said, okay, with all of those ingredients, what is the other industry that can use these skills? And it turned out that marketing was becoming increasingly technology-driven, right? Uh, people were like, I want to send out 1 million emails. I want to send out half a million SMSs. I want to track it all on a dashboard, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we said, all right, so that's what we will do. Um, so we ended up building a business in what is uh, uh, what we used to call then called technology-enabled marketing services, digital marketing or a new media company, whatever you may call it today. Um, and basically said, okay, who needs these services? Who has these large volume transactions? So somebody said banks have a lot of money and they do a lot of transactions. So we went ahead and signed banks. So we went and signed um, uh, HSBC Bank, uh, ICICI Bank, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
did a lot of work for them from everything from building the credit card rewards uh, program to managing email campaigns to you know building web banners and all of that grew that business um uh, you know from that point uh, so by 2007 we were about back to being about 100 people um and scaling back up um and uh, basically ended up at that business was called uh, EBS worldwide that's correct That's okay, correct. which is like easy buy store. That that yeah. So Ramad said is just make an acronym out of the name and let's get business going, right? Uh, so so we built that, and um, as it turned out, ILNFS Private Equity, part of ILNFS, uh, uh, came in and bought out ICICI Ventures, and they made money on that deal. So uh, they were very grateful that you know their patience in us was was kind of rewarded. Um, and we scaled up significantly from there so we we ended up uh, doing four global acquisitions we grew organically inorganically bought two companies in the us one in europe another one in delhi and literally pounded the pavement i mean we we went and and basically reached out uh, to head of marketing and said listen digital is going to be big uh, and they had some budgets right 10% 20 now it's all all together um uh, there was above the line and below the line and all of those kind of terminologies right so so we'd go and say listen we uh, help us uh, we'll help you manage your below the line budget um and, and a lot of these guys were learning on the fly right and we were the cool guys who understood tech uh, and otherwise otherwise they were dealing with the agency guys uh so building that so what is the difference between above the line and below the line so above the line was considered mainstream media such as uh, news uh, newspapers print uh, uh, you know television radio outdoor broadly speaking those were above the line and below the line was direct marketing emails website things like that right now there is no line everything is one uh, what they call integrated advertising now right um and of course social media was just kind of uh, building out at that time uh, so so we did that in india and we grew on the back of a lot of these brands i'd love to say that you know we did something extraordinary but what happened was digital moved from being 10% of an advertiser's budget to being close to 100% right so we kind of held on to that and we grew with it um you know yeah. and we did interesting things like we you know we worked uh, uh, with hsbc credit card rewards program when we started working with them they just had 100000 cards issued by the time we stopped working uh, you know they were like 4 million cards uh, that they had so we just had to kind of hold on if you like to hear stories of founders then we have tons of great stories from entrepreneurs who have built billion dollar businesses just search for the founder thesis podcast on any audio streaming app like spotify gana apple podcasts and subscribe to the show and why did you do global acquisitions was it like uh, to get clients from outside india or? yes i mean and and also for the cost arbitrage right so the whole idea was i'll give you a very simple economics right we were building websites in india for 5 lakh rupees at that time which we thought was a lot of money right um and we realized that in the us in new jersey they were making the same website and they were charging 50 lakhs right so in our head and i mean 50 close to 100000 at that time right and in our head we were like boss we'll just build the website in india and imagine the profit margins simple logic right so we 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 raised capital to go and acquire company is over there carve out technology carve out design carve out data processing move offshore it to india uh, and then uh, expand it 
Once we did that, we realized that across the river from New Jersey to New York, uh, the same website was being sold for five crore because a million dollar is what they would charge, right? And we thought that was insane. Uh, so we, that's how we we did this, uh, you know, string of pearls. Basically, we went and acquired these companies. So EBS Worldwide became a holding company, very similar to like a WPP or a publicist, etc. And the intent was to create a digital holding company of sorts with uh, these local assets across the across the world, including India, and leveraging the India cost base. Um, and uh, and and it had grown fairly rapidly. Um, and, you know, at that point. Uh, 2009 uh, or so, 2008 or so, uh, we were about 300 plus people, uh, you know, Fortune 1000 clients. There was a CEO for the Americas, CEO for Europe and stuff like that. Um, what kind of top line? Uh, we were about 50, 60 crores or so. Uh, and this is net revenue, not advertising revenue, right? Because of the agency business model. So this is net revenue. Um, and then Lehman Brothers happened. So, so we were like, oh, oh my God, there goes this entire thing, you know, capital is dry and all of that kind of thing. So, but it gave us an opportunity to actually focus on India, um, uh, you know, the India market per se. And that's what we did, scaled the business to about 400 something people, close to about 77, 78 crores in top line. Uh, and uh, then, uh, you know, our board came back. By which year, do you think? 2011. Like- uh, yeah. Um, and our board came back and said, listen, we must do a micro IPO in, uh, in, in India and let's try and use that to try and, uh, uh, you know, get some liquidity and so on and so forth. I wasn't sure, really sure. Um, what is a micro IPO? So like a small size, 100 crore, 150 crore uh, uh, Indian rupees kind of uh, an IPO. Um, uh, uh, but the process is the same as a regular IPO. Exactly. So I went through the song and dance for about a year, you know, met with all the bulls, or at least most of the major bulls, uh, did the DRHP or the draft red herring prospectus, appointed uh, the eponymous uh, Crawford Bailey and Company as a law firm to kind of do this and stuff like that. Went through that process for a year and I had my next epiphany in life. Um, A couple of things were happening, right? So, So first is I started thinking, is this something that I really want to do, run a public limited company? Right. Because it's one of those tigers that you ride that you can't get off. Right. Uh, So, uh, you know, if you run a public limited company and you're the promoter CEO of the company, um, you really can't sell those shares because if you sell the shares, the the stock price will crash. Uh, So so you continue to keep building it. And at this point, I was doing this for about uh, more than a decade. So I was like, okay, is this something I really want to do? In parallel, um, I was very involved with the startup community in it. Um, so I've been a founding charter member with uh, Thai, the Indus Entrepreneurs, the organization. Um, so I was doing a lot of work with early entrepreneurs. I used to sit on the advisory board of IIT Bombay's uh, incubator for about four years. So I, I was like, you know, what I really like is taking a company from zero to maybe, uh, you know, 200, 300, 400. But I'm not sure I want to take it from 1,000 to 10,000. Um, so I went back to the board and said, look, you know, I know we've put in a lot of time and effort. Um, you know, I don't want to do this. Let's figure out a way to get you an exit. So in 2012, 13, uh, that's what we did. We sold the business in bits and parts uh, because we were a holding company. We had different assets to a bunch of clutch of investors and so on and so forth. Um, and basically, you know, uh, stepped out of the ring. 
decided who, who bought the india business uh, so there were a clutch of private investors uh, who merged it into other businesses and stuff like that so it was not like a large uh, institutional and announcement kind of stuff um uh, which again in hindsight because we were a holding company structure it was a lot more complicated per se uh, to kind of do that but decided that i was going to move to singapore and start doing angel investments and you know figuring out uh, what i can do there and stuff like that right uh, how much uh, liquidity did you get uh, from this exit event i mean decent I, I i i just want to say decent i don't want to mention the numbers but uh, <laughs> uh, it was decent enough for me to think about uh, you know just spending uh, the the following years investing as a, i mean basically becoming an angel investor um and uh, and so so that's what i did i moved to singapore and uh, said that that's what i was going to do um so i set up a fund um along with a few friends um did some angel investments both in india and uh, the former soviet republic so in the russian continent uh and so so why i i mean like you had no exposure to that market what made you want to invest there so the logic was uh, you know uh, russia across the entire former former soviet republic while there are different countries um uh, uh, these uh, uh, the common language is uh, russian so it's like the english speaking population right so so the common language is uh, english but uh, you know the the local languages might be different um uh, they had demographics which was very similar to india a lot of young population internet penetration was significant and so on and so forth so all of the arithmetic around it or the thesis around it made sense um and essentially they were cloning businesses from from mature markets um uh, you know so so the idea was invest in clones uh, and then figure out kind of move in that direction the the uh, rocket internet strategy rocket internet model absolutely the samba brothers right so so that was the idea so we did a, about three investments in a couple of those areas and then i also invested in india um and as it turned out my what were your indian investments uh so invested in this company called first moms club which is the largest community of indian mothers uh in the world um and it's still it's still operational and ruchita does a fabulous job she's a founder or ceo of running that business uh another one was a company uh, called digital republic which is still operational it's an agency business uh, it's it's actually full disclosure it's run by my wife uh, uh and and uh, and the other investment i did was this healthcare company called cube health which i now run uh and um, so my next epiphany in life happened where my father was actually uh, diagnosed with cancer um and uh, you know so that kind of laid the foundation so to speak the genesis for cubelt but i'll take a pause and let you let uh, ask me some questions and then jump into the no 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 let, no this is pretty fascinating let's just continue with that i don't have any questions i keep interrupting you when i have questions don't worry about that so you know uh, i i reached out uh, needless to say any 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 family that has uh, undergone uh, you know a health condition like that you know you kind of get exposed to a lot of things right um i reached out to my uh, dear friend who's also the co-founder of cubelt gagan kapoor and i said listen boss uh, you know can you help me no, but, but what was the pain you saw there that made I'm, you i'm coming to that yeah i'm coming to <laughs> that right so so i said you know gagan can you help me you know dad's got this uh you know find find uh, good good doctors good hospitals what should i be doing insurance etc etc right um as it turned out gagan's uh, father in law also uh, was suffering from terminal cancer so we had and he and i have known each other for 20 plus years and but he, we happened to reconnect at a time when both of us were kind of having a common uh, you know situation in our personal lives 
his family, and let me first kind of tell you his background, and then I'll segue into the response to your question. Um, so Gagan actually spent, um, you know, uh, over 10 years with Ernst & Young setting up their private equity group, subsequently ran a private equity fund called Argonaut. He was a country head, invested both in public and private markets. And then he was called back to his family business, which was India's second largest insurance TPA or a third party administrator. Right? They run the back office for the insurance companies. So it was the second largest one. And he was running that. And so father-in-law said, listen, why don't you come and take this over? run it until my passing and once you know i'm no more then you can eventually sell the business and then kind of uh, do all of that and gagan did a fantastic job expanded it to sri lanka bangladesh seven countries in africa and all of that uh, but through that process understood the healthcare insurance business and also the he- uh, healthcare business in general the pain point for me uh, was like a pain point for any other indian which is number one that insurance doesn't pay for the entire healthcare right even after 35 years today insurance penetration in our country is less than 25% so three out of four indians do not have insurance or if they have they are usually underinsured uh, which was the same case with my my family you know uh, insurance was health insurance was always a tax saving measure it was never to mitigate risk or whatever you know your your chartered accountant uh, will advise you that this is something you must do to save tax um and uh, so needless to say you start thinking about spending from your pocket and the way you think about spending from your pocket is you spend from your savings or your borrowings that's how indians pay uh, so basically you know you are either underinsured or uninsured um, borrowing is very common um, and uh, but it is expensive either financially or emotionally um, and more importantly this entire relationship between you and the healthcare providers is a david versus goliath kind of situation right uh, it's very high friction uh, pain in the ass uh, and it's one of those only industries where the payer doesn't have any power right i mean in in retail in hospitality <laughs> take it or leave it i mean in retail or any other industry in hospitality if you are paying they treat you uh, uh, that you know hey that's my customer i need to really take care but in healthcare the power rests with the recipient of the money um and that that was the pain point you know for me i was like this is ridiculous first i don't have choice you know i can, it's easier for me to find a, a a hotel or a restaurant to go to than to find which hospital or clinic i should go to that's just bizarre right i don't have uh, a comparison platform i don't have choice and the only way i have to pay is pay from my pocket um and i have to pay whatever they tell me and i have to pay 100% upfront it's not on services delivered uh you know so fortunately because gagan happened to be in insurance and you know they being the second largest tpa he understood how healthcare pricing works uh he understood that when they charge you 2 lakh rupees for a procedure uh you know what does that mean and what is their real margin i managed to get a great deal in my you know touchwood my my father is uh, doing well you know uh, uh, and and he's living with it but uh, you know he's he's gone through procedures and stuff like that but he's all right but that journey really taught me the pain point of an average indian right and i didn't come in from the healthcare industry as you know so therefore for me i was dealing what everyone else in india deals with uh, perhaps not as worse but uh, you know at least to a great extent so gagan and i basically said that listen healthcare in india has gotten sophisticated there are better hospitals etc in private that are available but it's equally gotten opaque and it's gotten expensive we need to figure out 
you know, we need to do something to bridge that gap. So essentially, how do you bridge the gap between what the health insurance actually pays for and what the actual healthcare expense is? So we started digging deeper. Here, I'm going to throw some statistics at you, right? Um, over 70% of an average Indian's healthcare expense is paid from their pocket, which means paid from their savings or their borrowings. It's the single biggest reason why Indians fall below the poverty line every year. The single biggest reason. It's COVID has accelerated that. Over 5.5 crore Indians actually dropped from middle class to poverty straight off. And these are working class people, right? So when you look at the population of this 1.2 billion people or so, half a billion of us are employed in some way, right? Self-employed, working for the government or private. The rest of the population depends on either these employed individuals in your family to pay for healthcare or you depend on the government, right? So if you depend on the government, you're depending on all kinds of government schemes or government hospitals. But because as a country, historically, we've not invested enough in healthcare, private healthcare kind of has come in and filled that gap, right? Which means healthcare has gotten expensive and it will continue to get more expensive, right? Um, so we said the employed Indian essentially depends on their employer to take care of their healthcare needs. Uh, and the employer basically says, while you're working for me, I will give you a group mediclaim or what's known as group health insurance, right? Because that's a necessary part of your CTC or cost to company uh, of your employment. So I'll give you that. So the employed Indian goes through life thinking, I have an insurance bill that my company pays and until they actually have a need. Once they have the need, they start calling up HR and saying, listen, you mentioned I have a group MediClaim, now I want to claim. And then that's when you realize that that insurance is going to pay for less than 30% of your actual healthcare expense. And there are 1,000 different conditions and inclusions and exclusions and all kinds of nightmare. Majority of Indians have experienced that now during the COVID period. Okay, um, And you realize that how severely underinsured you are. Now, if you are educated and perhaps uh, senior management, you may augment that by getting a private policy of your own. But that percentage is literally in the minuscule single digits. So majority of them go through their employed life thinking, okay, we will see. If there is something, oh, insurance doesn't pay for it, Chalo, hai, savings were made for this. By the time you retire, you realize that, oh, now I am exposed. I don't have group MediClaim. Um, and it's too late or it's too expensive to get an insurance policy now, which means you spend the balance period of your life uh, wiping out your savings to pay for your health care. Classic story of every Indian, right? They spend their lifetime savings on their own health care needs. The interesting thing is the group MediClaim, the average MediClaim cover per employed Indian is just 3 lakh rupees, Right? which, as you can imagine, doesn't pay for anything. It usually covers just the individual, spouse, two kids, and maybe two parents. Leaves out any other family member or anybody that you consider as family. Uh, and of course, if one of them ends up claiming, which means that most likely your senior citizens in your family will, it will like leave the other people exposed and so on and so forth. So, so that became the genesis of QBealth, solving and bridging the gap between healthcare insurance payments and the actual healthcare expense. How do we put the power back and change the way India pays for healthcare? So that was the idea, basically. 
So with that in mind, we said we need to do two things. Number one, we need to create a marketplace. Uh, number two, we need to acquire users. Um, and once we've, so the health service providers such as hospitals, clinics, diagnostic centers, et cetera. So if we can aggregate everybody onto one platform um, and on one side aggregate all the users, that is essentially the employed Indians who can pay for healthcare. Now you have two sides to the marketplace, the buyer and the seller. And then you play the role in between of enabling the transaction. And when you enable that transaction, essentially you are able to control the flow and the experience and so on and so forth. Um, so we we spent about 14 months, went around the country using Gagan's relationships, aggregated over 11,000 hospitals, clinics, and diagnostic centers, uh, arm twisted them using charm and uh, whatever other means that were available. And convince them to give us done to bathe that yes <laughs> correct done done and uh, and um, uh, got them to give us discounts of the rack rate of different kinds of healthcare services and uh, went around the country and started signing up corporates uh, with a simple promise we went to the HR teams and said are you spending on employee healthcare and needless to say they said yes kuch karte hain we do something and we said okay great I'm gonna number one make your life easy in healthcare administration. You don't need to do a beauty contest of different providers. You deal with me. I will take away the headache. HR guys loved it because uh, they don't necessarily like doing this. It's not a domain expertise area for them. So we took that over. Number two, we told them that we will give you one price, lowest price guarantee on any healthcare services across the country. So if you're a multi-geography company, you know, Delhi, Bombay, blah, 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 et cetera, you don't need to deal with the SRL labs in one place, Apollo in another or Medanta or whatever. You just deal with me. I'll give you one price, one billing, lowest price guarantee. If you find anything cheaper, we'll match it. And number three, we'll tech enable the whole experience. So on your dashboard, you will know everything about how your organization health is and who's healthy, unhealthy, and therefore you can run programs. Um, so we incorporated that business in November 2019 uh, as Cube Health. Okay. Uh, Gagan left at that TPA which he was running? So, so as I mentioned, so his... Um, Father-in-law actually passed away. And um, so he eventually sold that business to MediAssist, which is the number one TPA in the country right now. And he joined full-time. So both of us got together and put together a team. Uh, Pankaj, uh, who's our chief operating officer right now, joined, joined us. And uh, so I started focusing on building out the technology and the customer sales side. Gagan started focusing on aggregating everything. And, um, and uh, we incorporated the company in November 2019 as Cube Health. And we said, let's build the business in two parts. First, let's build the customer base. And second, we will enable and control the transaction flow. Um, we now work with over 150 corporates across India, through whom we manage uh, 1.5 lakh or 150,000 employees of those companies. Uh, we are on track to double that number by March. Um, and uh, we, we work across six industries. Uh, from food services, manufacturing, IT, IT-enabled services, financial services, and so on and so forth, with some of the biggest brand names in the country. Um, uh, and the average size per employer is about 1,000 employees, uh, where we go in and take away the headache of uh, employee healthcare and workplace healthcare management for these HR people. Um, everything from pre-employment health checkups to annual health checkups, vaccinations, uh, uh, you know, uh, you, you name it. Anything related to employee healthcare, we do that. And we complement any existing health insurance policy that they may have. So typically we will work with the insurer or whatever to fill the gap uh, that the employee does not have. Because of that, 
uh, now we have relationships with these employed Indians. Um, and because we have those relationships, needless to say, we want to give them a marketplace. But by just giving them a marketplace is not enough because the single biggest pain point, based on what I mentioned earlier, for every Indian is not necessarily to find the right medical care. It's about how, how do I pay for the medical care. So what Cube Health does is we offer pre-approved, no-cost EMI to individuals to pay for healthcare. So 0% collateral-free, buy-now-pay-later healthcare. So what happens is, as an employee of an organization, let's say I come to... As it, there would be an interest component in it, right? Or you don't charge interest? We don't charge any interest at all. So it's, it's, you know, it's interesting, again, in our country, that you can actually buy a 0% interest cell phone or a no-cost EMI washing machine, but there is nothing like that for healthcare. Which is which is really really sad. We think, uh, you know, if you want to buy a new television right now for your home, you can walk into a Chroma, uh, immediately convert that into a equated monthly installment at no cost and take away. But you can't do for your cataract operation. You can't do that uh, for for your angio, right? Uh, and that is the product that we've built. Um, we we offer a pre-approved credit line of up to ten lakh rupees. Uh, 1 million Indian rupees uh, per employed individual uh, through their employer. So it's deployed through the employer. There is no liability on the company. Um, and uh, the individual essentially downloads our app and they uh, uh, also get a physical card, uh, which is like a regular credit card, um, uh, except there is no interest. Uh, and you can walk across anywhere in the country as long as it is health and medical. Um, and you can just scan like you do Google Pay or you do... Paytm or whatever, or you can swipe your card and literally take, let's say you're spending 1 lakh or 100,000 rupees on a particular procedure, just convert that into 10, 10 installments of 10,000 rupees each. No questions asked. You don't need to think about calling up a, you know, a call center, should I swipe, whatever. So whether it's an emergency or whether it's a planned procedure, whether it is elective procedures, meaning dental, eye, skin, assisted pregnancy, veterinarian or you know you name it as long as it is health and medical you can use it to pay for anybody that you call family now when you say you call family meaning it could be boyfriend girlfriend father-in-law mother-in-law you know grandparents it could be your dog uh, it could be a favorite uncle uh, you know anyone that you are willing to pay for um, so we we've uh, deployed that product actually uh, just a few months ago and uh, it's rapidly becoming one of the fastest uh, buy now, pay later, the fintech in health tech, uh, so to speak, uh, businesses uh, in itself. Yeah. So that's that's our journey so far. So now I have like a whole bunch of questions. Um, let's first start with the the B2B side of it, the, the employer onboarding part of it. So uh, you tell an employer that we'll take care of everything. So is this like a automated algorithmic self-service approach or is there like an account manager who understands what they need and then builds a offering based on what that employer yes, needs? Yes, the latter actually. Um, uh, because healthcare is a very high-touch business, right? And um, uh, so so the more you speak to someone, you talk to someone, the better it is. Um, so this falls in the category of employee health benefits. 
uh, which uh, the companies actually do that either because there is a government regulation around it. So in certain industries, the government expects that you provide certain healthcare benefits, um, checking employees for communicable diseases, statutory compliances, etc. And then there are other companies that do this because it's a good HR strategy, right? I mean, to to show that show your employees that you care. Uh, so, so they have what is known as out-of-pocket expenditure on employee healthcare, meaning where the company has a, let's say, you know, uh, you work for a bank and the bank will say, I will spend 2000 rupees per employee per year to get an executive health checkup done in a very simplistic sense. So they will tell you that, hey, you know, Akshay, uh, up to 2000 rupees, if you go and do a health checkup, we will reimburse that money. Healthcare is a very boring topic, right? Most individuals don't like to do something about it unless something happens. Um, HR, for HR, it's just a checkbox because it's one of those KRAs that they're supposed to do. So what ends up happening is less than 5% of an organization actually avails of this benefit, right? Number one. Number two, um, it's a nightmare because the industry is a cartel. It's it's opaque uh, and so on and so forth discovering price, discovering options, all of these things are are impossible, let alone for the individual. Uh, Imagine the HR, right? The HR is like, gosh, I'm supposed to do this, you know, health event across all offices. How the hell do I find out which lab to go to, which hospital, whether the pricing is right? And somebody will come and sell you a gold executive health checkup package. And and you're like, what the hell does that mean? Right? Uh, so, so things like that. So we go in there, understand gender, we understand demographics, we understand age, and curate, um, you know, healthcare packages. We look at past claims data on insurance um, and actually curate these packages. Uh, but to be honest, you know, for us, apart from simplifying healthcare management for organizations, which we do, we reduce their cost, we bring in their efficiency, make the employees feel like they care. It's ultimately about solving the problem for the Indian, uh, for the individual, right? The, the corporate acts as a ways and means for us to reach that, to acquire that relationship. Once we acquire, acquire customers in exactly, bulk, correct. Once we acquire those relationships, we understand better about that individual, and we realize that that individual doesn't care so much about their own health, but they care for their family's health, right? So if I came and told you, Akshay, you must go undergo a health checkup, you'll be like, yeah, 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 okay, okay, I know it's important. But if I came and told you that, hey, listen, when was the last time you underwent a health checkup for your parents? You'd be like, oh, okay, I want to hear more. Um, and so that's the a bit. And then the, the 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 natural progression of that would be where you'd be like, okay, can you help me pay for this? Right. So when you onboard an employer, uh, does uh, every employee of that company then download an app from where they get to know what all am I entitled to? And then they get maybe a notification that your health checkup is due or stuff like that. Okay. So you help HR also manage that pushing of policies and uh, sending communication that you must get this done. Completely. Okay. Completely. So, so for, Completely. for it, we do hybrid of WhatsApp and the app as well. So we take over the, the, the communication and the relationship management, right? So, so let's say we sign up with your organization, you'll get a WhatsApp message saying that, Hey, your company cares for your health and uh, they've organized uh, a health checkup for you. Um, and uh, it doesn't matter whether it's, it's, it's at home. Uh, or you can go to the nearest, uh, you know, uh, diagnostics lab within a five kilometer radius. Or if you want it even more convenient, the lab will come to your office. So in a conference room, we set up the lab. 
Now, in such a situation, you really have no escape, right? <laughs> you're going to get the health checkup done. Once your health checkup is done, all of your health records are available on the cloud in our app. Uh, it, 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 it's not the boring medical-looking PDF report. It actually tells you, hey, Akshay, your sugar shows borderline. Do you have a history of diabetes in your family? How do you get that then? Your uh, the, the the vendors need to then upload it in a certain format. Like, how do you get this? Yeah, so we plug in into the backend, the lab information systems and the hospital information system. And so all of that raw data is kind of taken in. We are actually part of uh, what is known as the NDHM uh, uh, in India, which is the National Digital Health Mission. Um, which which the government has put together, something similar to a UPI for payments. So a unified code, um, which is part of uh, Ministry of Health and Welfare of uh, of our country. Um, so as a result, all the data is secure, is GDPR compliant and data secure and so on and so forth. But what it does is using AI and data sciences, start finding patterns in that data and then recommend to you how you can live a healthier life and so on and so forth. Oh, amazing. So so for an HR manager, this dashboard is like the only thing he needs to do with respect to health. He'll just click there and the employees get notified. So, But uh, how do you... Uh, so this is not like a pure marketplace for you, right? This is more like a... Because you would charge something fixed and then maybe in some cities you would have a higher margin, some cities maybe at loss and all that. So, so that then you further then negotiate and run the execution for that. Absolutely. I mean, uh, because we understand pricing, right, of these uh, this thing. So let's say you do a complete blood a blood check, right, or a CBC test. We understand price of a CBC, CBC test across the country. We understand it at a unit level. Um, and the intent is that, right, how do you standardize pricing? How do you standardize pricing for the user? Uh, today, if, uh, if an elderly person in your family needs to undergo a cataract operation, why should the price in Delhi be any different than in Bombay? Uh, you know, significantly at least, right? I mean, there might be some variance. I mean, you can go and have, uh, you know, sushi at multiple restaurants and the pricings will be different. But by and large, there is some sort of a mental parity that you have, right? You understand why, uh, you know, a Michelin star restaurant will charge you a particular amount and, uh, you know, a regular street vendor would. But but in, in healthcare, that doesn't exist. It's completely arbitrary. Um, and, and the intent is for us to kind of standardize that. And it begins with that. And, and then once you throughput enough volume and once you control the transaction pipe, um, then you start doing it more and more and more. So a, a lot of your tech from an enterprise side would essentially be about empowering the account managers who work with these co- corporates to help them create the right package or help them price it in the right way. Like Like they would be able to see average price across the country for something and then add a markup and then give a quote and stuff like that. Actually, we, we we simplify it even further. There is a standard rack rate. So, I mean, for example, for health checkups, we have 1,510 different types of health checkups that are tagged in our system. So, there's a standard price across the country, right? We have over 3,000 something diseases that we track. Uh, so, on the basis of that, there's a price. The intent is to get to a self-serve model on the HR side at some point in time. But like I said, healthcare is a very involved, uh, you know, bit and they want to talk to someone. Let's take, for example, mental health, right? Organizations now, especially post the lockdown, want to measure uh, uh, their employee and their, you know, index, if you will, on depression, anxiety and stress. Um, So for them, it's about how do I know how my employees are doing mentally? Um, And, you know, they want to talk to someone 
so that they can implement a program. Now, let's say you've implemented the program, which is a simple testing score, uh, you know, an anonymized, personalized employees answer a bunch of questions sitting in the comfort of their homes, privacy of their homes. And on the basis of that, uh, the employee comes to know their own individualized score, but the organization comes to know a averaged anonymized score. Um, so if the HR and the CEO knows that the majority of the percentage of your people are leaning towards anxiety, now you can run programs uh, to address that in your population, right? So, so your organization health index can get better. These require conversations uh, with an account manager so that they can guide you in the right direction. Right, right, right. And what about from the uh, supplier side? Like once, say, there is a certain thing to be done, then are the suppliers like totally automated in that process or would someone call them and say, okay, okay we need to run this and what's the rate you'll give me? And like, like how does that happen? Sure. So, so I mean, to be honest, this is India, right? I mean, so uh, uh, a big percentage of it still happens offline because it's very relationship driven. Um, uh, but uh, to be fair, a lot of the modern hospitals, clinics, et cetera, they are getting extremely automated. And, uh, you know, the, the fundamental infrastructure has been laid through lab information systems and uh, health information systems, et cetera. So we can plug that in. So it's a hybrid, I would say. Uh, but it's still a very relationship-driven business. We have relationships with all the big brands in the country. Uh, and because of that, you know, somebody on the operation side will kind of plug in. More importantly, for the providers, uh, providers being a general term for health service providers, right? Um, we are a demand generator, right? Uh, we are a channel to sell more. Uh, we get, get them customers, we get them curated customers, and we also finance the transaction. Um, so, so it's a no-brainer, right? I mean, uh, if I'm a hotel and somebody comes and tells me, listen, I will uh, bring you 50% of your entire sales and I will finance those guys so that they buy now, pay later. Uh, you know, I'd be doing cartwheels and saying, hey, look, tell me what you need. And that's an important point. So the, the, we want to get the provider to ask us saying, hey, look, what do you need from me? And our simple response is, what I need from you is for you to treat my customers well. When a Cube Health user comes to you, treat them the same way you will treat a rich shake coming from the Middle East to your hospital or clinic for a treatment, right? Um, because if you don't, uh, then I'm not going to give you more customers. It's as simple as that. It seems to me like a good path forward would actually be for you to uh, raise large rounds and acquire uh, these providers, you know? I mean, because if you really want to have control over the customer experience, then probably that would be the way to go. Is that on your radar? Like uh, Two-part uh, response, right? So first part, yes, we are, uh, as on tomorrow, uh, hitting the ground for our Series A. Um, and, uh, you know, so naturally the intent is to kind of build scale significantly because we are on a rocket ship right now. Uh, we've been growing over 150% quarter on quarter. Uh, uh, and so, so it's, it's, we're just kind of holding on to the rails, so to speak. So we need to do that. And, uh, the time is now. So therefore we are kind of doing that. Um, no, uh, no on acquiring the providers. It doesn't make sense for us to acquire the providers um, uh, because um, for us, the focus is the user, the customer, right? So any any kind of investment that we are doing is on making that experience friction-free. On the provider side, I'm running a marketplace like Amazon, right? Uh, so all I'm interested in is working with each of those providers uh, to better the experience, right? 
uh, and and so let me give you a vision, right? So imagine a scenario where it's broken down into three parts: uh, transforming the front door access to healthcare for the user. So we are the first person you think of to call and access whenever you have anything related to healthcare, emergency or non-emergency. Number two, transforming how you pay for healthcare. You walk into any clinic, any hospital, you whip out your card or your phone and instantly just pay and convert that into uh, EMI. Even if your insurance covers it, you can just get a reimbursement later or whatever else, et cetera. Number three is transforming how you experience care, meaning if there are IoT devices that sit in your home so that they can monitor and give advanced notification to the provider, and that provider is plugged into the network so that the seamless experience happens, and you will have somebody physically present like a Swiggy boy or a Dunzo boy at that hospital who will handle your admissions all the way to your discharge, you will feel confident to send a elderly parent to that hospital because you've done a booking through queue. Somebody will take care of it the experience of care in itself. If I have to do that entire vision, um, I just need to create a <coughs> better engagement at the provider level. I don't need to own them. I think they are doing a fantastic job anyway. Hmm, okay. But uh, I mean, you know, while you say that Amazon is a marketplace, but then Amazon has that whole private labeling business, yes. which <laughs> is increasingly, you know, replacing the third-party brands who sell there. Uh, so, so, you know, I, I, what would be the corollary here? So the corollary here is that um, um, in healthcare especially, what you're looking for is uh, uh, the best option, the best choice. So choice is an operative word. Options are operative word. If I end up owning some of those brands and I keep pushing you towards that brand, what's the point, right? Maybe the best possible care is at I, I mean, just to use an example, let's say the best possible care for cardiac care is Medanta, right? And the best one for cataract might be Shroff Eye Clinic. And the best one for IVF might be a, another particular brand. Just because I happen to have an investment and whatever, then I'm doing a disservice to you as the user. Um, no, so but that, you're assuming that you'll not invest in building capability into that, no? I mean, you would probably, if you buy something like, let's say you buy a diagnostic chain, a pan-India diagnostic chain, uh, to run your uh, the supply side, that obviously you would invest, you would use tech to make that chain better at what it does. And of course, but but I think it comes down to the core of what we believe our business is. Right, uh, our business is not uh, doing providing better surgeries or better diagnostics. You know that requires a skill set of investment in in resources that that specialize in that. So in fact, that's what we tell our partners, at least on the diagnostic side. Invest better in making your equipment better, your phlebotomist better, your lab technicians better. Leave the sales to us. My job is to manage the sales experience, the customer experience, right? And, and addressing all of those queries, providing the preliminary care. That's where I want to invest in. I don't want to invest in making a better infrastructure. I mean, let's take the case of Narayana Health, right, or NH Hospitals. They've, they've, their obsession is to provide the best possible care at the cheapest possible price, right? And they've expanded significantly. And I think that's a very, there, there are uh, people like them that have made that their life's mission. Why would I want to try and compete with them? I, I, I'm like, okay, great, go ahead and do that because that's what you're good at. Let me manage the customer experience uh, on this side. That's what I want to invest in. 
But to answer your question, if I have to invest, I will invest in AI, IoT, you know, things that essentially do preventive, uh, you know, preemptive care, maybe palliative care. Those kind of technologies are very, very interesting. We become a channel because we have a large base of customers to kind of test that out. Uh, we want to invest in having more high-touch relationships so that you could be sitting in Japan, your parents are back in India, you can call up Cube Health and somebody will actually go and concierge the whole experience for them, right? That's what I want to kind of invest in. Okay, okay, okay. So uh, let me come now to the B2C part of this. Uh, Okay, before I come to that, uh, so, you know, what kind of margins do you make in this? Like, if you price something at 100 rupees for a employer, uh, like, say, uh, or 1,000 rupees for an executive health checkup pan India, then, you know, what kind of margins do you make on this? Obviously, I can't, I can't go into details on that. But but uh, let's, let's put it simply that um, it's enough for us to be able to offer 0% interest. Ah, okay. Got it. <laughs> okay. Okay. So uh, that was my, I, in fact, the next question I wanted to ask you is how are you offering a 0% interest EMI? So that's because of the price differentials. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing, right? I mean, going back to my earlier point, uh, why is it that you can buy a television and a cell phone and a washing machine at 0% EMI? Clearly there are economics at work where the financing company, the retailer and the manufacturer of the product have gotten together and said, let us lubricate the transaction by offering finance so that customers buy more, consume more and everybody benefits. Uh, you know, that's essentially the play role that we are playing. in mm -hmm. uh, And are you like collaborating with a fintech to run this or you built your own stack on this? No, no, no. So uh, I think the, the fintech infrastructure, there are enough fantastic companies that are out there right now. So so they, they enable that. Uh, and so it's a collaborative piece around it. Okay. Okay. Got it. Mm. Okay. So uh, when people go for these services where they can do a BNPL, uh, do they book the service also through Cubelt or I can just like walk into any place and just any place. pay? You can walk into any place, okay. wherever Visa and MasterCard is accepted. It could be, you know, Midnapur in West Bengal or Zahirabad in Telangana, uh, Siliguri or wherever. It doesn't matter. Um, just go in there. That transaction is anyway routed through me. So you... You can pre-book it, post-book it, doesn't matter. Just walk in. Let's say you have a uh, you have a dog as a pet. You want to go to the veterinarian. Just go to your regular veterinarian. Uh, see if there is a cube QR code. If there is a cube QR code, you can scan it like uh, GPay. Convert that into an EMI in case it's a procedure that's slightly expensive. Or just swipe it. And the entire backend infrastructure is powered by Cube. Cube will then connect with you, help you uh, figure out better options next time, and so on and so forth, and finance that entire transaction. But how do you know it's not getting misused? It's not getting swiped at, let's say, a, you know, whatever, at a restaurant? Great question, for example. Question. So the card mm -hmm. is enabled and tagged so that it's only accepted at medical and health establishments. How does that happen? Talk to me about the back end of how you did this. So it's it's actually uh, it's a fairly common practice in in uh, uh, in the cards industry. Uh, there are merchant codes, right? So the merchant codes essentially define the type of business you are. Uh, so so the merchant codes are enabled only to accept that. So you can't walk into a a mall and uh, or a restaurant and then swipe it. It just is not possible. So uh, what is like your uh, current revenue number like? And what is the meaning of revenue in this case? Is it like the total 
services and packages sold. Yes, or that's like, right. Gross know. transaction value. So GTV is what we call it. Um, again, I can't disclose the numbers, but um, uh, you know, needless to say, um, within the next 12 months, we will be arguably the most dominant uh, healthcare aggregator uh, uh, in the country in terms of the kind of throughput of business that we will do. This episode of Founder Thesis Podcast is brought to you by Long Haul Ventures. Long Haul Ventures is the long haul partner for founders and startups that are building for the long haul. More about them is at www.longhaulventures.com.